Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Nick Davenport, aka Mr. Mental Muscle, back on another episode of the Mental Muscle Podcast. Now, today I have a very special guest, someone I've had the pleasure of being on her podcast about three years ago. So I'm so happy to have her on mine now so she can drop some of the knowledge she has from the psychology field and just life in general. We have Dr. Kim Cronister today. So we're going to talk about a lot of different topics from relationships to health and wellness to people in the psychology field and all types of topics that will get your mind right, as I will always say. So with that being said, Kim, uh, just tell a little bit about yourself and we can dive right into this and get it going. Absolutely. Yeah. Dr. Kim Cronister here. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. Uh, I started out in health psychology. So, um, you know, I was working as a personal trainer, worked myself through my bachelor's degree doing that and um, started studying health psychology. Um, I was a business major at first, but I decided to shift it to psychology right when I was about to be done with the business. Um, but I'm glad I did. Went on to the master's uh, program, psychology, um, doctoral program after that. Um, I did some internships at a psych hospital, so that was pretty stimulating, psych uh, inpatient psych hospitalization settings. So there were you know, people with acute psychosis and eating disorders and substance use issues. Um, so we started there and then worked my way into being director of a couple of rehabs for drug and alcohol treatment, one in Malibu, um, another one in LA, uh, West LA. So yeah, so um, from there, I did a lot of private practice work, um, a lot of writing. I've been a professor in sports psychology. So yes, yeah, so dabbling in health psychology here and there. That's been basically my career so far. Basically, that's that's a whole lot. And there's a lot of things you've done. That's actually how I found you originally. I, I bought your book. I don't even know how I came across it, but I bought your book. Um, It was called The uh, Psychology of Fitness Motivation. And yeah. I read that, I think like 2014 or something like that, I read it. And then I think I started following you a little bit after that. And then we ended up connecting later down the road. So that's how it came to be. But I know you've written uh, numerous books. If you don't mind, go over some of the ones you've written or any ones you want to plug. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so then I subsequently wrote um, Peak Mindset. Um, so that's more of a psychology of success. So that's health and wellness, but also for success. So a lot of research in that. So I'm really big into research. I'd love to pack that into the, the book. So it's not just fluff, you know, it's actually based on evidence, uh, which is, you know, I feel like more appealing, more motivating when you've got that research to back up what you're saying. And I think that's an issue with the industry. I'm not saying it's a bad thing because there's a lot more people, whether they're psychologists or life coaches or whatever, maybe something in that room, motivational speakers even. But there's this like dichotomy of like the people who are just trying to make you feel better versus people like us who have a background in it. And we still want to make you feel better, perform better, do better. But like you said, have that research, have that data or the statistics to show, oh, this is what the science says, but this is also what I do with my practice. And I think that's what makes you so good at what you do, that you have the practical as well as your uh, knowledge. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really love it. I love to write. I love to read, um, you know, really ingest as much info as possible. I think what you do is really, really stimulating. Um, incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you as well. So I want to ask you, so on this channel, I like to talk a lot about also like just how all this can go into different lanes other than just like, you know, the actual psychology, but I want to talk about TikTok. So TikTok is in the last, what, six years has really blown up, has made a lot of people famous, a lot of people rich, and some have their opinions about it in a negative light. Some have a positive, but at the end of the day, it's a means to an end. I don't knock it. I have one. I definitely know you have one. And that's why I want to get into this. So how has that been a good tool? Because I know you have a lot of following and traction there and you give a lot of information in those clips. And I think that's a pretty good way to deliver. And like I said, there's a lot of people doing it in this, this industry, but I think 
my biased opinion as well as the results you get. You do it very well. You demonstrate actual techniques people can use. I know you do a lot of stuff with relationships. So how did the TikTok kind of blow up and get to where it is? And how do you utilize that to spread your message? Yeah, TikTok's been a really fun, incredible journey. Um, so during the pandemic, um, actually, it was right before the pandemic, so 2019, um, I started making TikTok videos. So I felt like, I mean, I'd, I was following, you know, some of the big influencers and saying that's hot right now. And, you know, um, I felt like I, I liked that idea of those kind of short clips. So I got into that 2019, of course, the pandemic hit 2020, and people were on their phones, and <laughs> they were, TikTok was blowing up. So as I'm doing these short videos, um, you know, people are consuming it. I'm getting followed. I'm doing the relationship. I started out doing just kind of general mental health videos and people really glommed on more for me, um, listening to me with the relationship piece, the breakup recovery and the relationships. Um, they just really, I guess there was an audience for it. So at that time, um, that's when I started acquiring a following. And um, a lot of it, again, was very research-based, so I would just make it fun. So whatever the studies showed about the relationships, relationship tips, I would, you know, put that in, disseminate that in the short clip. And, um, you know, it's easily digestible. So a lot of, a lot of people from uh, Gen Z, um, you know, we're, we're consuming that and of all ages now, because now it's uh, everybody's watching it. <laughs> Gen Z. Yeah, they're definitely the ones who made the bridge of the gap. I know people in our room is more so. We, we got a little bit of both worlds, right? Yeah. So definitely they, I don't think as many are on TikTok, but Gen Z definitely in the newer, I don't know what the generation after them is called, but they're definitely like the breadwinners on there. But um, yeah. yeah, so so let's get into the relationship stuff because I think everyone who's watching this has probably had some kind of relationship and probably had one that failed. I doubt, there might be a few that were one and it was the one and it worked out, high school sweethearts. That's out there. I'm sure that's like the 0.02%. But for, I think the majority of us, we've been through bad breakups or, not to help this breakups or not getting over an ex. So what are some of the things? Cause I know you have your book about it, breakup recovery. So what is that about? Is it just about breakup getting over? Is it about, I think you talk about getting back or when is, what goes into all of that? So yeah, again, kind of going back to TikTok. So what people were really looking for was a way to maybe get their ex's attention initially, right? So they're in so much pain that they just, they feel really desperate to just get the ex's attention. Now, that's kind of like, you know, obviously not the healthiest thing in some cases. And in some cases, there needs to be more time and healing before they actually decide if they want to go back that route, especially if they were, they were the ones taking for granted. Um, so what happens is, is that, um, you know, we start making videos and making, you know, writing this book about really filling yourself up inside, having a fuller identity, you know, doing more things for meeting a purpose and activity. And sometimes the outcome of of a breakup is that you actually become well, maybe a fuller person or a new version of yourself, which of course it takes so long to get on the other side of a breakup because it's so painful. Um, but honestly, I feel like people used to make it like a joke, you know, getting over a breakup, like ice cream or alcohol or, you know, some bad, you know, maladaptive behaviors was going to, you know, help you. And I think the movies, you know, the television kind of perpetuated that. But what I would say as a psychologist is that breakups are really clinically underrated you know they can be extremely painful extremely brutal so just because you're in that moment wanting an expect doesn't mean that you might not learn something in the process of trying to get them back and part of getting them back is the same recipe as getting over them which is starting to develop a fuller identity getting more meaning and purpose doing things for your career being more active taking care of your body your health your mind your spirit 
um, being more in the moment, seeing more people, more you know, being more connected. And I think that goes back to the initial relationship because we start, we can start that process of kind of losing the person when we're losing ourselves in the relationship. So maybe we're not connecting, maybe we're not, you know, working out, maybe we're not reading, consuming, or taking care of our wellness. Um, and maybe we're not even focused on our goals and dreams like we could be um, if we weren't so focused on that person. So we can really fall away from that stuff. And that can, that can sometimes be the catalyst for why there was a breakup, in, you know, in the first place. Uh, you just said something um it's a clinically underrated and I like that you said that because I had a client a few years back and she was going through a hard breakup and she was likening it to like PTSD and I know a lot of people you liken PTSD usually with like loss of life or witnessing something horrific or disaster or even sexual assault but what is your take on that far as like someone feeling necessarily diagnosable but like having the symptoms of that from an actual breakup I have seen I have seen um, a lot of clients actually unfortunately have frequent nightmares um, and feel tra and feel traumatized from the breakup because you're right it, and like we said it's clinically underrated so all kinds of things can happen you can get startled easily with noises you can be in a, in a crowd and start feeling really anxious and dizzy so you can have symptoms of of PTSD from from a breakup absolutely um, you know you. You can get that diagnosed from a, a therapist professional. And if you do feel that kind of trauma and you do get sick of, you know, nightmares, there's something called EMDR, which I'd love to promote. It's only eight sessions. Insurance usually covers it, but it's called eye movement desensitization reprocessing EMDR. So anyone that you know that's struggling with PTSD can actually go call insurance and or just look it up EMDR and try to find a provider that does it. Actually, I've heard of EMDR. I'm not that familiar with it, but I'm I get the gist of it. And I've heard mm -hmm. a lot more about it. It's, it's getting more and more prominent. I think that I heard like, I don't know if it was like on Joe Rogan or, or Huberman Lab, and they were talking about like the lady who was like the who brought it to the forefront. She came across because of her own like experiences. And like, could you explain more of what it consists of? Yeah. I mean, it's actually like, you know, I'm not an expert in it. So you actually have to be certified in it. Okay. So I, it's very elementary, my my understanding of it. What I do know anecdotally is that clients that that I've seen that I've referred to it have had a large percentage of success. So anecdotally, I can tell you that it helps that way. Um, it was originally a finger movement. So they found out that, you know, moving the eyes in such a way, you know, while either after or while you're talking about the trauma can actually reduce those symptoms. And again, it's only around eight sessions and you have to be certified to do it. So you have to be an expert in it. So anecdotally, I know that I also know by the research that it is one of the most important modalities for getting PTSD down because sometimes you can go into therapy and just a general therapist and think that it's going to get down. And then a lot of times we see those nightmares and those memories of trauma, you know, perpetual because you're not, you know, you're not using the modality of choice. I think that's a lot of things in the mental health field is getting a lot more prominence. A lot more people are getting aware of at minimum that there's is a there's a space for this because I can say maybe 20, 30 years ago, it was still kind of taboo to say, you're working with a therapist? Oh, you must be crazy. So I think mm -hmm. we've thanks to things like social media, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, even that we've gotten more acclimated to it. But do you think there's still some kind of stigma? And I know it's gotten better, but have you seen because you're more in the clinical world? So have you seen that it's opening up more? I've seen stigma only for really the last couple of years. I've only seen the stigma with um, disability evaluation clients that were, um, a bit, you know, maybe I would say like over the age of 50, 
um, and in different cultures, you can see there's more stigma. So it depends on the culture. Um, but as far as like the younger generations, I'm not seeing a stigma. I'm seeing people feel that it's very normative. I mean, if you think back, like in New York City and Los Angeles, um, even Miami, it would be so, so widely accepted with um, kind of the upper class or upper middle class populations because they could afford to go, they could afford their, to take their families. So couples therapy, marriage, you know, marriage therapy and um, individual therapy would be quite common in those households. And so urban population, um, upper middle class, upper class, um, that would be quite prevalent. Uh, but now it's, you know, people can use their insurance, they can use, they can do pro bono therapy, they can use sliding scale, so cheaper rates. Um, and then it's all over TikTok and Instagram that people are, you know, I've got my therapy session today and that's quite normative. Yeah, I see a lot of that. Are you familiar with um, BetterHelp? I am, yeah. So that's that's so nice because it makes it so um, accessible. Yeah, they're able to do that online. Um, they can text also in between sessions. So it's uh, pretty pretty digestible. I think the pandemic might have helped with that a little because I know since everyone was inside, things like the telehealth, it existed and all that asynchronous type of uh, therapy or treatment. But I think that blew it up because you really didn't have much of a choice because you, yeah. everyone was inside. Because I, I I didn't really hear about that. I know it probably existed before, but I didn't really hear about it until like a year or two ago. And I see a lot of people are using it. I had actually had a client who uses a therapist from BetterHelp because it matches you up. So I think, like you said, the stigma is getting reduced. And that's a good thing. Like this new generation, like you said, the TikTok generation or Gen Z, whatever you want to call it, is like they're way more receptive to this because you can go back in the day where it's like, oh, something wrong with you. It's like, yeah. is it something wrong with me? No, but maybe I need to deal with this issue. And now it's like, nah, I, like you said, they happily say it. Like, it's not keep it on the hush hush. Like, I remember when people would just, just be like, shh, don't tell anyone I'm, I'm seeing a therapist, yeah. especially with athletes. Have you seen especially that? Athletes. Oh, yeah. that would give a lot of stigma back in the day with athletes too. And not, not even, you're right, not even that long ago. Um, but yeah, and then I like to tell people too, like if they want to do therapy, they can see that they can see the therapist as a life coach. It doesn't have to be something that's necessarily wrong. I mean, insurance obviously would want to see that there's something going on, but you know, you can utilize your therapist as a life coach. You can say, listen, I want to be more present or future oriented. You can really guide the therapist and if they're good, they will listen and you are able to shop for therapists. So that means do one or two, three, uh, or do two or three. I would say at least um, initial sessions. That way you get to choose who's a better fit for you. Yeah, that's that's another thing I think people don't get too. Is like, yeah, like you said, shop for them. Like it shouldn't be a, a fit, just like with a personal trainer, just like with a significant other, it needs to make yeah. sense. Like shouldn't just be a person who has a credential and you're like, all right, help me. Like they should be able to, whether it's race, gender, sexuality, religion, and all, all the above. Like you should be comfortable to be able to do what you want to do and say what you want to say. Exactly. I completely agree with that. Well, with the life coaching, so I guess for people who may not understand, what is the difference between, say, a life coach and a therapist? I know that people watch may not get the difference because they get lumped up sometimes in the same mm -hmm. category. I mean, they can overlap, you know, but typically a life coach is not necessarily focusing on pathology. So life coach doesn't have to necessarily focus on symptoms that are negatively affecting your life, let's say. They don't have to focus on depression and anxiety. However, some of the life coach could lift you out of that depression and anxiety naturally, but you wouldn't be directly treating it. So with a life coach, you'd be kind of looking at the areas of life you want to improve. So you're really focused on strength-based, improving something in your life. So 
you want to get better at your career, you want to be more confident, you want to work out more, there's a behavioral change maybe you want to make, um, be a better speaker, um, get motivated, because maybe you're amotivated, you know, in the first place. Um, life coaches can also help with relationships and kind of direct you. And I've seen a lot of progress made even one-on-one. -on -one. So that person that's doing the life coaching um, might actually affect that relationship quite significantly because of the fact that they're, um, you know, they're getting these tips, this outsider resource, this outside perspective of what might, might or might not be going on. Nice. And I'm glad you said that because I always talk about that too, that when you think like clinically, right, only about 10 to 12% of the population will be treated for a severe disorder. So it's like, what's going on with the other 90%, right? So it's like, what you just stated is perfect because a performance or your day-to-day -day life or a job, whatever it may be, there's still things you can help with and improve. Like some people, I heard this term, you don't got to be sick to get better, right? Like, yeah, exactly. You know, people think you have to have something going wrong or I've even had people come to me for uh, stuff and it'll be like a week or even a few days for a performance, a game or whatever. And it's like, oh, now you want to come? Like, nah, you got to do stuff before because it's all about the, the skill set and learning the strategies versus come fix me. Because they look at that as come fix me. I have an issue. My game's tomorrow. Fix me. Yeah. It's like, you wouldn't do that with a doctor or, or with a physical doctor or a medical doctor. So why would you do it with your brain or your mind? There's so much to, I mean, you're talking to, you're talking to a life coach or you're talking to someone like yourself. Like we're seeing so much, we get to, you know, ingest so much research. We get to talk to so many different people. You know, there's, there's little things you could tell us a narrative of just what you, what's going on in the week. And there'll be little tweaks or little adjustments or some advice that you would just never have thought of maybe because you're just not maybe exposed to what we're exposed to. So yeah, it can be, it can be quite life-changing. Nice. Nice. So I actually wanted to ask the question, going back to like the relationship stuff, I had a few things written down and I wanted to ask for someone who say had a very hard breakup and, and I've had new people ask me about this and this is not necessarily my specialty, but I always approach things from, you know, a performance mindset, but someone like you who's more expertise is in this field. It's like, what would you tell someone who they have those walls? It's like, okay, my ex did X, Y, and Z, like you said, triggers and all that is like, he said this in this tone or this, it might even not be a tone. It might even be just a phrase that he or she said. And it's like, I hear that. And once I see her or see them do an action or a word or a phrase, it's like, I correlate that with all the other bad behaviors and now they're resisting. And I get you have to be, you know, protect yourself. But a lot of people have that wall. And I guess part of a breakup is being able to rebuild and move forward. So what would you say to someone who like struggles with that? You know, I really, it's so hard because you're right. It's, you bring it so much from the last relationship and there's just so much, so much projection. I mean, even a mental health um, expert is going to have a typical time not bringing in something from the last relationship, right? Um, so really working on reactivity, you know, um, being understanding, uh, not seeing everything as a red flag, you know, um, not blowing things out of proportion, not necessarily breaking up without actually talking about it first. Um, reactivity is a big thing. So really that's about motion regulation. So you feel really dysregulated, right? You're, you're fearful, you're angry. You're, you're like, why is this person showing these maybe potential red flags? And you want to really work on being able to be in the moment and calm when you do see that and observe what's going on, then take the next step. And when you're ready and really prepared, then communicate what the concern was. Um, and try as much as you can to get them so they're not on the defense because otherwise you're not going to see the really good version of them. 
Um, but I think you do really have to give a lot of grace in new relationships, um, which is hard to do. Do you think like maybe as we get older too, it makes it a little bit harder because now you have more things to like kind of refer to because you have like a bigger catalog of what ifs, you know, because it's, it's inevitable as you learn, you grow, you get wiser. It makes sense to learn from your past mistakes, but could that be detrimental to, to a degree? Yeah, I mean, there's obviously some things that, you know, you if you see a red flag that's major or you're, you know, being, you know, verbally abused or something like that, physically abused, obviously, I mean, that's different. But barring that kind of thing, um, you do want to really be, you know, hesitant to blow up or to be overly reactive. And I do see, you know, when people have a lot of relationships, um, you know, historically, that they can be too quick to cut them off, too quick to cut off relationships. Um, and it takes so much watering and it takes so much work on not being so reactive to actually keep something and maintain something. Um, that it really, it can pay off a lot to just at least get an outsider perspective before you blow up um, to actually observe what's happening. Think about the projections you might be putting onto them. Think about maybe you, you could be being hard on them before you actually, you know, talk to them so they don't feel confronted um, in a negative space. So yeah, I think there's a lot of payoff to actually, you know, being less reactive, more in the moment, observing, and then taking some time before you actually ask them what's going on and telling, telling them the concern because you don't want them to feel like they, they can't be their true selves. You really want to give them space, especially in a new relationship, to be them, their true authentic selves, uh, which can be hard, but it's, gonna, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be rocky no matter what. They don't have to have any pathology at all. They don't have to have any mood disorders or anything, and it, it can still be really rocky. You, you said a lot of good things, especially with the communication is key. And it seems so cliche that, you know, people say, oh, obviously you communicate, but it's like, most people don't do it or they don't do it well. And you mentioned about not not being quick to cut them off or let them go and talk about something like, say, ghosting. I see a lot of like memes online or TikToks or videos where they say, I'm quick to let someone go the minute I see a flag or whatever it is. And it's like, that's being promoted in a ha-ha joking way, but it's kind of like becoming the norm now because it's like, I get it. If it's something obscene, yes, you have the right to be like, hey, I'm not with that. But going to the point of like, did you talk about it? Did you let him or her know that you know what, that didn't make me feel comfortable because people talk about boundaries all the time, right? But like, I think part of a boundary is like, let's say an analogy of you have a dog. It's not like you just put him out in the, the backyard or without a fence and just hope he stays in the yeah. place in your mind where he shouldn't go to the next yard, right? You right. wouldn't do that. But no. when it comes to relationships, it's kind of like we expect the other person to be like, oh, these are my boundaries. And once you cross them, I'm done. Versus like, hey, let me talk to you about what just happened or like you said, let them have that grace because maybe it was innocent. It could have yeah. been innocent, you know? And if it wasn't, then yeah, that's bad. But if it was like, oh, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. I didn't think about that. And then maybe you can build from there. But it's like, like, why do people tend, not say why, because there's no one size fits all, but like people tend to just like be so quick going back to the emotional regulation, that impulse control, like just go. I don't like it. Nope. I'm not even going to think about it. And then just You're let out. it go. You're out. And that a lot of people know there are people that want to reject others before they're rejected because there's been so much pain behind being rejected, behind being left, behind being broken up with. But back to ghosting, um, that can be super painful. I've had a lot of clients be, that have been ghosted and then they're just confused. For, they can be confused for six months to a year. I mean, it's it can be really hurtful, even in a short-term relationship because, you're, yeah, they want that information. What did they do wrong? And then they, it starts affecting their self. It can affect their self-concept. Now, of course, it's on them to do the self-work, so it doesn't, 
but to know you can have that type of impact on someone, even if you were in their lives for a brief time, to be really sensitive to that, that the ghosting is one of the worst things you can do for someone's mental health, unless they did something egregious or it really was a brief relationship. And of course, it's still up to you. You know, if you, if you feel like ghosting is the best way for you or it's the only way that you, that's the only capacity you have, sure. But understand that it, it can affect people greatly. So going on that note, I think this may, and this is my opinion, but you might know better than me, the um, social date, I'm to say social media, but social dating apps. I, I mm. think personally that might've helped with the ghosting thing a little easier because it's like, you have these faces on a page that you may or may not have even had a verbal conversation, maybe text at most or at minimum. Mm -hmm. And it's like, why would I care if I ghost them? We, we text back and forth for seven days. We seem to have some commonalities. Then the next person comes along. Ooh, I like them better. Mm -hmm. Delete. And it's like, they won't get hurt, but there's like, there is a person on the other side of that picture, you know? Yeah. There's a person on the other side of the picture. I will say this though. I mean, obviously they should, it would be nice if they default to, oh, I wasn't a fit, you know, and try not to take it personally that I wasn't a fit, you know. But when you get into like a two month, three month situation, relationship, um, that's a little bit different. But yeah, a week of texting, that can be really hard to get rejected when you start habituating to getting their messages. But that's, of course, then you'd want to interpret that as it wasn't a fit and, you know, obviously not to chase and not to take it too personally. Most definitely. So uh, I saw one of your TikToks. Um, you have a lot of them. And a lot of them did a lot of good numbers. But this one I wanted to ask about particularly, it was about being high value. And I hear that term a lot more. I'm not sure if you're familiar, like there's a lot of podcasts now, YouTubers talking about dating advice, but more mm -hmm. so from like, a, I don't know how to describe it. It has a term, you might've heard this term, red pill. Have you heard yeah. that term before? Mm -hmm. So these people, I typically see this term there, high value, high value. <laughs> so what does that, what, what do you define that as? Because they have their definition, I know, and it's usually very limited to a few things, but what do you uh, claim that as, or see that as? I'm going to be, have probably a watered down version compared to them. Um, just because I am, I was, I've been exposed to some of that, um, some of their content. Um, but I would say for me, let's just say, if I just had to put it in my context, um, there's some things that I like about that, you know, so like the red pill, let's say. So Red Bill is being aware, right? Am I correct? They're more aware of certain. Yeah, they, certain they took it from the Matrix analogy yes. with Morpheus, Red Pill, Blue Pill, and Red Pill. Is more info, right? Yeah. Nicholas? Okay. All right. So here we go. Okay. So Red Red Pill for me, from my interpretation, would be okay, perceived like higher value, and that that would be, and, and others would be perceiving that. That would be the goal. Um, to not put people on a pedestal. Okay, these are all kind of like the decent traits that I feel like this red pill holds. To not necessarily put people on a pedestal, idealize them, to not put people above you, right? So the red pill would be not putting a woman or a man above you. A lot of times we're talking about women when it's dating, um, but it's good for the same thing. Um, don't idealize someone to the point where you are chasing them like they're a celebrity. You are acting insecure around them. The red pill also would be a very confident individual. Um, they wouldn't necessarily be chasing, um, maybe initially a little bit more pursuit, um, but not, but not throughout the whole thing. Um, they, they typically get the person more attached. So some of this can be manipulative, but they typically get the person attached initially and then allow that other person to 
you know, pursue them more. Um, but yeah, red pill would be more aware of really how to make a per another person attracted to you, to respect you, to be interested in you, to feel like you're high value. Um, and again, not to put, not to do too many things for other people to the point that they take you for granted. I think that sounds pretty much what I've heard. And I agree with a lot of that because I think when it comes to dating, regardless if it's male to female or whatever it may be, it, it seems that that happens a lot where, especially I think it happens a lot with the younger guys nowadays. Cause I know we come from a generation where it's like you had to call someone's house. And I remember having to call, Hey, is, is Cindy home? And yeah. their dad's like, who is this? And I'm like, Oh, and hang up and like, what, who is that? And it's like, yeah. it's nervous. Now it's like, you don't have to do that anymore. You just can kind of like, say, hey, beautiful, to 20 people at once. And yeah. just whatever hits, hits. So a lot of the, I don't want to play that kids these days card, but it's like, it kind of shapes this, like say, putting people on pedestal, where it's like, let me just throw out these effortless comments and compliments, and mm -hmm. hopefully it boosts them up to the point where they like me back versus like, no, let me get to know them, show them that, hey, I'm working on this, or I'm doing that, or I got a job here, or whatever it may be. Like you said, building yeah. that, that value. Like just with like a business, right? You don't just go to a client and just, sugarcoat them and make them feel good and butter them up yeah you should be nice you should have rapport but it's not like because they'll peep that they'll see like hey i get you're trying to sell me and mm -hmm. I, i'm not trying to say dating is business but in a sense it kind of is it's a contract between two people right like we agree that we're going to enter in this with the best hopes that this will work out for the future mm -hmm. so it's like we should i think we should go into it kind of with that like mindset yeah, and I think there's a kind of a more cynical point of view, obviously, that we I'm sure we know of that with the red pill is that there are users out there. Well, that's true. There are users out there. Um, there are people that want you for your money or people that want you for things that are superficial or um, there are people that just want you temporarily for just fun, depending, you know, men and women, right? And that they don't want to be taken advantage of. So that red pill understanding that there could be users out there, which can get extreme. Like if you're thinking about this too much, now it's harder to have a lens for authentic and genuine people because now you're really caught up that everyone's out to use you. Now there are some things that I think are protective that, which is why this red pill concept is kind of a, kind of appealing to me, which is, yeah, you don't need to put someone on a pedestal. You don't have to overshare or overgive. Um, you don't need to chase them hard. You, you know, you can, Explore your options, obviously, you know, until you find someone genuine or worth your time. You should be confident. Confidence is the number one most attractive trait in men and women. So there's a lot about that concept that I I, I get. Um, you know, it just depends on, you know, the influencer and what their take is on it. Yeah, there's a few names uh, that definitely have a higher, like, following, like, in the millions where they consider, like, the leaders. Like, I think a lot of them, what they'll say is it was... The red pill as they know it now, because I know that, like I said, that term isn't just for dating, but it's like what it is now came from, I guess they they say it's a defense to, from at least from the male perspective, that like, for example, uh, a coffee date, some women I've heard say, oh, that's not enough. So they were saying, okay, this is a defense for that. But obviously that's not every woman or every person, mm -hmm. but it came mm -hmm. to the point where everyone got lumped into that. And it's like, okay, let me defend myself from these type of women or these type of people. And that's mm -hmm. why I think a lot of people take it as that versus what you said, which you broke it down more, you know, generally versus mm -hmm. like, no, I'm going to be cynical or pessimistic that if this person's interacting with me and they're trying to use me or take advantage, I got to put up these 
these defenses to beat them to the punch, you know? And I think that's what the mainstream kind of looks at it now. And I think it's become more of that versus like, no, let's just have a system where we can both adequately date each other and we're not using each other, wasting each other's time. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a good, I mean, you, you could be overly defensive or you could use it as a balance. Like I enjoy, I enjoy and just that time, that type of, um, you know, content because it's good to be reminded that you shouldn't put people on pedestals. That's it. That concludes your, your career. You know, you don't really want to talk to people like they're way above you. It's going to make them feel like you're not maybe worth being a partner for them or, you know, working with them on the same level. You don't want to do that in dating. You don't want to necessarily do that in friendships where you're chasing too much. Um, so it's nice to be reminded to be confident and, you know, not put yourself below other people. And, and what does it take to put yourself on people's levels? Obviously, very positive thinking, um, obviously taking care of yourself, uh, working hard on your dreams and believing in yourself, doing affirmations. Uh, there's all kinds of things that can put yourself in that mindset where, you know, you can be confident and you don't have to put yourself underneath people or be used by people. Um, that's okay. Maybe people have had a lot of pain from being used and they need to have some way to protect themselves. You know, there's maybe some residual anger over that. You don't want to just, you know, discard um, every woman or every man because of those experiences. Um, so just, you know, make, make sure if you're using those type of concepts that you're, you know, try not to go extreme. Always what they say in psychology is that um, the gray area is usually the most healthy. So if you can be balanced with the concepts that you're using, that can be really helpful. You know, I like that. I like that. I'm going to use that. Definitely, that's a clippable moment. But um, <laughs> speaking of careers, I want to ask this because when I have someone on here who has a more practical side to their business, what would you give to people? Because I've actually had maybe in the last year, five interns work with me doing all types of stuff, whether it was mental coaching, cognitive training, whatever it is, you know, my business consists of all of that stuff. And the biggest question I get told or asked, I should say, is how do you make this a business? Because they'll learn the book stuff. Like I had one who was a, got their master's in sports psychology. I had another one who did neuroscience, but they had the same end goals, like unless it's academia. And obviously that's not the only route, but they're not really pushing this. So what would you say to a person like your, who wants to be like yourself, have this, their credentials, their education be utilized in a practical way where they're not just confined to one lane because you've obviously made money with your books your your actual practice your training fitness tiktok whatever it may be you've done it in very multiple fields so what would you say to a person for people out there in psychology who don't know how do i take this to that level yeah i mean i would say that's one of the reasons i love psychology is that you can work in so many different realms um same thing with business, of course, but like, yeah, with psychology, you can be a speaker, you can be a writer, you can, um, you know, write for magazines, um, you can be an influencer if that's what you want to do. Um, you know, you can be a professor, you can be a director, you can be a private practice psychologist, you can have interns under you where you're not even doing the, you know, necessary work, you, you're just actually being a, a guide for those interns under you. You can have a major private practice that way. Um, you can work in rehabs, hospitals. It's um, there's quite a variety. And I really appreciated the fact that there was a variety because I, I can get easily understimulated. Um, although if I pick something that I really like, like something that I'm doing right now, it's been it's already been like six years of doing the same same type of work. But I always like to have multiple streams of income, and I like to be stimulated. So you know, I'm doing different things different times. See, I'm glad you said that because 
as simple as it seems, because we both do that. Everything you listed, we both do that. But it's like, you'd be surprised. Like, I've seen so many who don't know where to go. And I don't think it's a bad thing. You're young, you're fresh out of school, you don't know. And even I went through that. When I first graduated, I thought the only route would be be a therapist. And then obviously I learned later on that, hey, there's so many things. And I do do speaking, I do do uh, coaching, I do the cognitive, I do my tactical training. So it's like, the the sky is really the limit. That's why I wanted to ask you that to have another voice because I talk about it all the time, but I think more younger people who are finishing their degrees, they need to know this so they can take it. And then we have the next generation of people in the psych field to know that you don't just have to be a professor, you don't have to be a therapist. That's usually the, the two I see the most. Uh, no absolutely yeah a lot of different things you can be doing yeah so going over to say like performance because we talked about business athletes things of that nature going to that side of your expertise because like I said I found you with your book the fitness motivation psychology of fitness motivation what are things that people because I've dealt with this with myself personally as well as clients and a lot of people have trouble just just getting up and moving whether it be a walking around the block a few times or a full-fledged workout what is something simple obviously they can go get your book obviously but something simple you could say like how do you get started like what's the simplest thing they can do yeah like you want to start activating more you want to move more um maybe let's say that you wanted to go to the gym more what i told um someone recently um is that you don't have to go to the gym to do the most painful exercises because you can have an adverse reaction to that right you're vomiting on the day one. That works for some people. <laughs> that can be motivating for some people. For other people, you know, they want to have maybe the reward attached to something little that they did, right? So they can start habituating to it. So maybe they're doing free weights at the gym one um, one day. And then if their favorite thing is to, to sauna, you can do 10 minutes of free weights and go to the sauna. It's okay. You don't have to be extreme with everything you're doing. And you'd be surprised because if you're doing that and then getting your little reward, whether it's a a juice after some weights or a juice after some cardio or the sauna or the steam room after or a swim after, or even like a movie, something outside of the gym that you're rewarding yourself just from literally going to the gym for 10 minutes. You can start habituating to going to the gym just by doing that. As long as you're doing little, little bits, you know, progressively getting more and more time at the gym, let's say, or doing whatever workout you're doing and then find some kind of reward. That's obviously not, you know, you know, ruining the, what you already accomplished. So it's obviously not binging on food, <laughs> barring that any other reward, you know, hot baths on a steam room movie, seeing your friend after even just taking a photo and putting it on social media that can actually help you a lot to habituate to it because now people are seeing they're motivating you too. They're liking it. So I would actually recommend um, posting that and your results on social media as well. So yeah, just little, little by little increments. And we call that exposure therapy too. Like you want to expose yourself to things that you're averse to that you don't want to do just in little doses and just extend that little by little. You can even map out, okay, I'm going to go 10 minutes today. And then I'm going to go 15 minutes every day starting next week. And people around you are going to start being excited for you. And you know, you're not going to feel like it's so extreme, so averse, so painful. It's just going to feel like, okay, this is like my activity that I enjoy doing. And it doesn't have to be aversive at all. You know, I think that's a lot of people overlook that. They, they, I like that you said little by little progress because they, like you said, they want the extremes. They want to do the five days a week and they haven't worked out in like six years. So it's oh. like, I get ideally more workout means more result, but your body physiologically isn't even there yet. So it's like you set yourself up, like I said, that, that failure of like, if you get the reward, you finish. That's the simplest thing. Just finish. But if you set that bar so high <laughs> that you don't finish, now you feel 
oh, I'm a failure. Now you reinforce the wrong behaviors and, and all that. So right. I guess I'll segue to another question is, what would you say to the person who they get into it, they're taking it step by step, but they're not getting the results. And you know, this happens to everyone. They'll get maybe the first week or maybe month to get the beginner gains, but they get deterred mm -hmm. because like, oh, I lost eight to 10 pounds in the first month. Yay. Two months later, uh, plateau. And now they're like, what's the point? So what would you say to the person who gets to that point now? They've reinforced behavior, but now they're like, I don't see it. You know, I think this is where I would promote, you know, people like yourself and coaches, because if you're on a regimen that's already proven, okay, I mean, barring hormonal issues or whatever else, for the most part, if you're on a proven method and you trust the person that you got that plan from the meal plan and that exercise plan um, from, then it should just be about allowing yourself to feel more confident, engaging based on confidence, allowing yourself to feel better in clothes, allowing yourself to be excited about what your friend, you know, friends think about, you know, you actually going and activating. Um, yeah, it should be more engaged on confidence, in my opinion, and, you know, how you're feeling in your body, you know, how is it, how is it feeling rather than, you know, maybe wait, which is hard to do. But I will say it's a, it is a, you know, it's a game of patience building your body in whatever way you want it to be building it. Yeah, so that's great advice because a lot of people get deterred. Like you said, the scale, it doesn't tell the full story. And I've had people tell me like, I didn't lose but one pound, but it's like, was that one pound of fat, one pound of muscle, or maybe you gained a pound of muscle and lost two pounds of fat. So the scale won't show the true difference, but they'll see their body change and still be deterred because the number didn't change. And it's like, but reality shows you otherwise. And it's funny how we, we trick our minds because we have this expectation of, this number or this this certain point but everything else argues the opposite that you did succeed or did accomplish and it's just weird how we we, we deter ourselves because of those unfulfilled expectations yeah i mean as elementary as it might sound i think that having a joy in the process is the biggest thing so i mean try to make it if, if you can try to make it a workout that you enjoy doing even if that means something outside i mean it should be something you somewhat enjoy doing so that it's long lasting. You don't want to be burning out three months, six months later, you know, and then you don't want to be hyper-focusing on weight that way. One pound here, one pound there, that's water weight here, fat there. I mean, that's, you're really going to be ping-ponging in your head that way. So there's other, there's other gauges. Um, but I think, yeah, joy, confidence, um, having things to look forward to. We're supposed to be scheduling to every two to three months, something to look forward to. So if you could schedule like a getaway or a mall trip or something like that every two to three months, something you really enjoy, watching a fight, whatever it is, schedule that every two to three months so that you have something to look forward to, you know, not just, you know, looking at the scale because you might feel dramatically different psychologically and physiologically, you know, every two to three months and then you're gauging it based on that. So it doesn't mean you don't have to take any gauge of your weight. It just means that there are some other ways to, to go about it. So this is off topic, but kind of on topic because you just said watching the fight. So I got to ask, because I've seen you post the videos at some of the fights. You know, I work with a lot of UFC fighters. Yeah. So who, who, who's your top uh, fighter, I guess, male and female? Okay. For if you female, can choose. Um, I think Adesanya, because I saw him in person for male. Fe uh, female, Holly Holm, all day long. Ooh. Nice. All day long, Holly Holm. <laughs> I loved that she was a professional boxer first. And, you know, she does not care about her age. You know, she's the one that knocked out Ronda Rousey. And I respected Ronda Rousey a lot before that happened. 
but uh, that was pretty magnificent. So yeah, I can never get over that. Nice. Very good choices. Uh, I've seen Adesanya fight twice in person because he was on two cards when I went to see my guy Dustin fight. So when Dustin won the interim belt, he fought um, uh, Kelvin Gastelum and I actually worked with Kelvin Gastelum. So that was interesting. Oh, nice. And then and I saw him fight on uh, Marvin Vittori when Dustin fought uh, Justin Gaethje, who he, he's fighting Justin Gaethje for a second time in a few months. So, yeah, so yeah, there's definitely good choices. And I like Adesanya a lot, the style bender. Hopefully I maybe get a chance to work with him. But um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll, put it out. I'll put that out there. <laughs> but yeah, so before we wrap up, I always like to end every episode with two take home messages, kind of like a call to action of whatever it is. It could be from anything, health, fitness, psychology, life, goals, two things that when they hear it, they'll turn this off and say, I'm go out there and do whatever this advice or tips could be. So two take home uh, messages before we wrap it up. Anything comes to mind. Yeah. yeah, I think number one is to really, really hone in on your identity because when you're thinking to yourself, you know, I'm a person who, that is very powerful. I'm a person who does not work out. I'm a person who is not successful. That is a powerful thing you're attaching to your identity, right? So before you start activating, you do want to get into that that mode, that, that cognitive mode, the thinking of, I am a person who starts my day with affirmations. I am a person who will accomplish most of my goals I set out. Not necessarily all of them, right? But most of the goals today, um, daily. So I'm a person who works out daily. And you have to start thinking this way usually before you can really start habituating and before it can actually take hold of your identity. Because the people that are actually doing well, you know, in their careers and they're working out consistently, they start attaching those behaviors to their identity. I'm a person who gets up in the morning at this time. I'm a person who accomplishes most of my goals per day. I'm a person who works out several times a week. Start thinking yourself as that type of person and you'll see how that can help with your identity as long as you're not doing too much black and white thinking like all or nothing. And that leads me to my second point. I think there's so many dreams out there. Um, what I'll say is when I've seen couples not doing well or couples that want to cheat even, um, sometimes it's because they're not going for their dreams and goals. I'm really going to be honest with you. Um, I've seen that a lot. And you'd be surprised how much neglecting your true dreams and goals can affect a lot of things in your life. Quite a lot. Because let's say you're at a nine to five, but if you're doing your dream, dream work on the side, you might be a little happier. Or if you're doing your dreams, working on it just a little bit, you're, you might be more happy in a relationship, you know, more satisfied. You have no idea. So really honing in on the dreams, but making sure that perfectionism is not getting in your way. Because if you're not taking any steps at all, that's when I see, you know, a lifetime of dread. I've seen a lifetime of dread with people. And then they finally start, oh, at 55, like I should be doing this. That's okay. It, it took till 55, but this whole time, the perfectionism or the all or nothing thinking is getting in the way of that, right? So allowing yourself to do things little by little is really, really powerful. You know, being kind to yourself, easy on yourself if you're doing your goals. And if you slip off, that's okay. But just like with addicts, you know, when they when they have slips or relapses, we, we ask them, get back on it, then you don't have to shame yourself so much. You're, you're, you can expect lapses. You can expect relapses. You can expect, you know, perceived failures, but it's only a 
permanent failure if you don't try again. So being easy on yourself, not being so perfectionistic and honing in on some dreams that you haven't maybe tapped into in a while. That'd be my tip for today. That was amazing. I definitely think they'll appreciate that because the identity part I liked a lot because I dabble a lot with personality psychology with the things I do and you hit it on the money. Like you tie these behaviors, but then you tie behaviors that aren't productive to what you're trying to do. And then you add in the perfectionism. That's the, the thief of so much joy because I got a an A on the test, but I missed this question wrong. Or I, I hit a home run, but I struck out twice. It's like, okay, you weren't perfect, but you hit a home run. So it's like, we we did we detriment our own achievements because of perfectionism. So that's something I think doesn't get pushed a lot. It's usually the opposite. Be perfect. Don't mess yeah. up. Win, win, win. It's like, okay, I'm going to win, but I'm, I'm going to lose too. I'm not saying I want to lose, but it's it's part of the game, you know? So mm-hmm. powerful stuff. So yeah, mm-hmm. plug uh, your social medias where they can find you, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, as well as any new books you got out. I know you're always putting out something, so uh, mm-hmm. plug anything you got going. Yeah, my, my newest book is called Breakup Recovery. So if you're going through something like that, that can help. Um, TikTok, Dr. Kim Pronister. That's Dr. K-I-M-C-H-R-O-N-I-S-T-E-R. At Dr. Kim Pronister on IG, TikTok. And you can find me there. If you message me about this podcast, I'll definitely get back to you. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. This is a great conversation. We touched on so many great topics and you gave some great feedback. Like they low-key got a, a free session on the house. They don't even know it. But um, yeah, so thanks for tuning in, guys. And as always, get your mind right.